free to see, or freedom from deception and believing lies. It is not good to be deceived or to believe things that simply aren't true. Causes us lots of problems. How many people have had an aha moment in your life where all of a sudden something you thought was true, you realized wasn't true, and something else is true? You have an aha moment and you kind of wake up into reality. I think that's happened to me probably about 40 times. I wonder how many more opportunities there could be in the future. You know, I mean, when, when do we get to the end of that? I think it's after we're in heaven for a while. I heard one preacher one time say that probably about the first thousand years or so of being in heaven, we're going to be going, oh, we'll be doing that for a long time because there's a lot of things we just don't understand. And we want to be free from deception, free from believing lies. And this is going to take two weeks for us to get through. This week, we're going to talk primarily about being deceived and believing lies for the believer inside the church. And next week, we're going to talk primarily about being free to see God for the first time, being free to understand that God is real and and that sort of a thing. So we'll be dealing with the great deception of not believing in God next week. And this week, we're going to be talking about deception inside the church. So very important things. And I, I've just, I'm believing God for good things to happen through these next two weeks. So let's start with the church rather than with the outside world, because I believe that the church is the key to setting the world free. It isn't that the church is waiting for the world to straighten up. It's that God's waiting for the church to change the world. It isn't that we're just sitting back thinking, oh, yep, everything's going bad. Did you see what was in the news? Uh, uh, uh." No, we're not just looking at the world and complaining about it and waiting for them to change. God is expecting his church to change the world. That's what we're here to do. We are the light of the world. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14, and let's look at this. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He's talking to the big group, and I'm going to say something kind of tongue-in-cheek. This is rhetorical, because God does not make mistakes. God is perfect. Everything is calculated and planned and done just right. But I like to say this in a particular way in order to get people's attention. So don't, uh, don't think I'm slipping into heresy here. But for sake of emphasis, could this have been God's greatest strategic mistake to make us the light of the world? To make his church, his people, ambassadors for him. Representatives of him that... The world would see God through God's people. That we would be the light of the world. Might something possibly go wrong when people are the light of the world? When the church and the believers are the light of the world? Might we misrepresent God from time to time? Might we misrepresent the truths of God, the heart of God? Just the whole thing can get messed up because we are the light of the world. Isn't it important for us to get this right? We need to not be deceived. We need to not be messed up. We need to be the light of the world because we are. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We don't get to not be the light of the world. We can be a bad light, but we're a light. This says the light because we are the representatives, the ambassadors 
for Christ in this world. Verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to the entire house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So I believe that the greatest evangelistic tool that we have at our disposal right now is Christians living the Christian life. If we live the life, if we are people of love, if we are people who are following Jesus, then that will cause our actions, our good deeds to bring other people to praise our Father in heaven. If we're living the life, if we're getting it, if we're walking in God's ways, then that's going to be so attractive to people that they're just going to come on in. But if the church is full of hypocrites and fools and nitpicky people who are just mean to everyone and doesn't want new people messing up their church, then what's going to happen? It's going to be a disaster. Because we're the light of the world. So we've got to get things straight first before we start dealing with unbelief outside of the church. We've got to get ourselves straightened out. Because I believe that God's church is called to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? A thermometer can tell the temperature. A thermostat can change the temperature. We are called not to look at the world And whine and complain about the temperature. We are called as the light of the world to change the temperature. We are called to change the world. That's what Jesus asks us to do. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers. That's you and me. So we have to get free to see and understand before we can get into evangelism. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 was in the Sermon on the Mount. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. A great sermon that Jesus preached and was recorded in Matthew, in Luke also. And very, very important teachings. Another part of this sermon, Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Let's look at being free to see in light of this passage. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Does the speck need to come out of your brother's eye? Yes. Jesus isn't saying, hey, just let it go. We've all got our faults. It's fine. Just let it go. What he's saying is, deal with you first. Deal with yourself first. Because when you're full of hypocrisy and imperfections and problems, and you try to help someone else, all you do is cause more issues, cause more hurt, cause more pain. That's why in our vision statement, we have it in a particular order. Our vision statement, reach up, rise up, reach out. We want to connect with God, then that changes us. We rise up out of the junk in our life into God's call, and then we reach out. Now we can make a difference. Once you get the plank out of your eye, you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. But before that, you're going to do damage because of the plank in your eye. Now, which is easier to notice? 
the speck in someone else's eye or the plank in your own eye? Which is easier to see? The speck is so much easier to see. It is so easy to see what other people are doing wrong, but it's so difficult to see what we individually, personally need to change. Isn't that amazing? So we have to work at taking the plank out of our eye. And this is actually a very important thing, and it's kind of a little scary. We're going to talk about a few slightly scary things this morning. Are you cool with talking about some scary things? That happens here. We talk about all kinds of different scriptures, but we're talking about being deceived inside the church. Jesus here is telling basically the believers, get the plank out of your eye. You want to go change the world? That's great. Deal with yourself first. The key to being free to see is me dealing with me. Then I can see clearly to help other people and make a difference. But later in this very same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. This is heavy stuff. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Of the category of people who say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, he says, not all of them are in. I thought everyone who called on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does he mean? Well, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? These are top level people. They're driving out demons and performing miracles and prophesying. I mean, this is big stuff. Next verse. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So this is very key. Away from me, you evildoers. So they're doing religious things. But their hearts are dark towards other people. They're doing evil. They're not doing what Jesus said. They're not following Jesus. They're calling him Lord, but they're not giving him authority over their life. So if someone is your Lord, your higher power, if someone is your God and they tell you to do something, are you going to do it or not? Calling Jesus Lord, but not making him your Lord doesn't count. It's not a magic word. You actually have to submit to the Lord Jesus as your Lord and do what he tells you. So if Jesus says to sweep the kitchen floor, you say, yes, sir. If he says jump, you say how high. That's how this works with this Lord business. He is our Lord, so we must obey him, walk in his ways, and then he truly is our Lord. That's harsh, isn't it? This Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven is very reminiscent of a verse that we've read earlier in this series, James 1.22. So let's read that section, James 1.22 through 25. Here in the book of James, it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Let's keep reading in this section. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So what is this talking about? Why do you look in the mirror? To try to fix it as best you can, right? You know, you look in the mirror, you're dealing with your hair. I look in the mirror, I think, well, there's not a whole lot I can do. And you, you, just, you just try to fix some stuff. But maybe I've got some spinach in my teeth. And I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, look, spinach in my teeth. That's not going to work out real good on Sunday morning. 
But what if I looked in the mirror? I'm like, oh, spinach. Okay. And I just go about my merry way. I got a big chunk of spinach in my teeth. It might be distracting to people. The reason you look in the mirror is to change things about yourself, about your appearance. That's what you do. Comb your hair, straighten out your tie, get the spinach out of your teeth. That's what you look in the mirror for. And so if you look in the mirror, but you don't make those changes, it's bizarre. It doesn't make sense. And so verse 25, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So why do we read the scriptures? Why do we look at the teachings of Jesus? Why do we do that in the first place? It's so that we can fix things in ourselves. And so if we look at what Jesus expects us to do, and then we just ignore it. It's like looking in the mirror and you got spinach in your teeth and you just leave it there. Go ahead and take it out. Let's go ahead and do the things that we're called to do. So doing religiously things but missing God isn't good enough. We want to connect with God and walk in the ways of God. How prevalent do you think doing religiously things but missing God is? Saying, Lord, Lord, listening to the scriptures, but missing God. We don't want to miss God. We want to grab a hold of God. We want to live out the truths of God. So how do we get the plank out of our eye? We're supposed to take the plank out, right? We all know that. We've read that already. How do you do that? If it's hard to see the plank in your own eye, and it's a lot easier to see the speck in somebody else's eye, we tend to focus on what other people are doing wrong, and we don't look at the plank in our own eye. How do we get the plank out of our own eye? I have the answer. (laughs) But the answer is in an even more difficult passage than this chapter 7 of Matthew, where not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's in a more difficult passage than that. Isn't that scary? So I'm going to tell you the answer before we get there in case that passage distracts anybody. And here's the answer to how you get the plank out of your own eye. So the reason we get the plank out of our eye is because first we have to deal with ourselves. That first deception is that we need to fix them or they need to get their lives straightened out. No, you need to deal with you. That's what needs to happen. We need to get the plank out of our own eye. And in order to get the plank out of our own eye, here is the key to unlocking freedom, to be able to see clearly, not be deceived, not believe lies. And it is simply this, love the truth. If we are going to see clearly, we must love the truth. So let's look at this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Here, there's an amazing section of Scripture. The Thessalonians were actually advancing in the faith very quickly. So the Apostle Paul was able to have very deep conversations with them. It wasn't like the Corinthians where he writes, stop doing that. You know, he's able to say, wow, you're doing great. Keep doing that. Now let's talk about some, some bigger stuff. And so the Thessalonian letters are very interesting because there's some deep level things that are discussed, not just, you know, Cut that out, but it's, it's good stuff. And here, the Apostle Paul is writing about end time situations with the second coming of Jesus and the Antichrist and all kinds of fancy stuff. And in the middle of that, we see the key to being able to, to see, to not be deceived, which is love the truth. So let's read this, starting in verse 8. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Is refusing to love the truth a serious problem? Yes. Do you think that's only a problem outside the church or can that be a problem inside the church? Not liking the truth, not loving the truth. We must love the truth. This refusing to love the truth is very dangerous. And in fact, it keeps going. We got to read the next two verses because they're wild. When I first read these verses, it dropped my jaw. You ever read something in the scriptures and you're like, That's what happened to me here. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. So we see God sending a delusion to people so that they'll believe lies. How well are you going to understand things if God's sending you a delusion? Yeah, you're in serious trouble. Why does he send them a delusion so they'll believe lies? So that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but who have delighted in wickedness. So we see people... Here, described as not loving the truth, then God sends them a powerful delusion so they'll believe lies and be condemned. I told you this was a hard passage. Now, here's the question. How much do you want to know about what it's like to not love the truth? Let me tell you, you don't even need to bother with it. Just love the truth. Okay? It looks like there's some pretty significant messes that happen when you don't love the truth. So let's just... Be done with not loving the truth and instead love the truth, right? We don't need all the details. We don't need to see how far we can go. You know, like, I don't want to know how much do you have to smoke before you get lung cancer. I don't even want to find out. I'm just not going to smoke at all. I'm just not going to fiddle with it. I'm not going to fiddle with hating the truth. I'm just going to love the truth. I don't have to worry about any of that. So I must love the truth. So here's a few questions I have for you. What is your relationship with truth? Are you hiding from it? Do you like to bend it? Are you afraid of the truth? Are you ignoring the truth? Do you like to reimagine the truth? Or do you love the truth? Sometimes the truth isn't super great, but facts are our friends. We need to love the truth. Then we can see clearly. So instead of delighting in evil and refusing to love the truth, let's do the next verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go to verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So being sanctified by the Spirit means we get aligned more and more with the values of God and the ways of God over time. The sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So we love the truth, believe in the truth. He called you uh, to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does sharing in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ sound way better than being condemned? Yeah, so let's just go in that direction. It's up to us. We can just simply choose to love the truth, to love the gospel, 
and to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Stand firm and hold to the teachings. This gets us back to John chapter 8, 31 and 32 that we've covered earlier in this series where Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we have our three steps. Hold to the teachings, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You can't know the truth unless you love the truth. If you don't like the truth, if you're spinning the truth, if you're bending the truth, if you're reimagining the truth, you're not going to know the truth and you're not going to get to freedom. So we must love the truth. What are some things that we can love besides the truth that puts the truth away in our lives? I've got a list here. Like, for example, we can love other people's opinions and go with what the group has to say, right or wrong. I love fitting in. I love having people agree with me. So I'm not going to love the truth. I'm going to love public opinion or my group's opinion. That's dangerous because it's not loving the truth. So here's the list I've got. Instead of loving the truth, people can love being right. Be very bold and confident, but still wrong. (laughs) I uh, had the privilege to study philosophy in school. I enjoyed it. It was fantastic. I got two degrees in philosophy, did a lot of arguing with people and pressing various points and evaluating arguments. I loved it. It was great. One thing that I learned, simply this, it seemed to me that the better a person was at arguing their point, the more likely it would be that they would be wrong. The better they were at arguing their point, the more likely it would be that they would be wrong. And let me tell you how I came to that conclusion, because it usually shocks people. But here's the deal. If I can take a weaker argument with less evidence and I can win the debate, I'm probably wrong. I'm just good at arguing. And so that person is very skilled at defending what they think. And so even if they're wrong, they're going to be able to talk themselves into believing that they're right and probably talk some other people into believing that they're right, but they'll still be wrong. Instead of trying to win the argument, we must seek the truth and love the truth. Don't try to defend your position. Try to find out what the truth is. It's much more important than arguing your point. That's good for debate class in high school. Fine. But if you want to love the truth, then when you start to see, oh, turns out I'm wrong, be like, oh, well, wow, let's figure out what's actually true. Because it doesn't make any difference if you're good at arguing your point. You're still wrong. Love the truth rather than loving being right. Next one I've got is people can love drama or controversy more than loving the truth. I see this a lot. You know, you get the headlines. It's a simplistic, emotionally laden statement that at best is maybe half true. But it makes you all emotionally tied to it because people love drama or controversy. Have you ever been in a situation where emotionally you just needed that person to be wrong? It didn't matter what they were about to say. You knew you're going to argue against them. You ever been there? Anybody married? That's not loving the truth. That's loving them being wrong. And you just, you're emotionally vested in them not being right. So you want to argue against them. Whatever they say, you're taking the opposite position. That's not loving the truth. 
That's a disaster. Next one on my list. Ooh. Loving your photoshopped image. Loving the facade you put forward. Not just putting your best foot forward, but putting a pretend foot forward. I get to work with a lot of different churches. I love that. But one of the things I've noticed is that they do not represent their attendance accurately. Because have you ever looked at yourself in a picture and just went like, oh, sometimes we, we see the truth of who we are and we don't like it. So we want to change it. And that can lead into not just putting your best foot forward, but pretending you're something you're not. And that's very dangerous because it's not the truth. Just be who you are. Be the best you you can be, but don't pretend you're somebody else. Don't love your photoshopped image. Years ago, I got a great piece of advice, and it was this. When you're a pastor, be honest with the congregation about your weaknesses and your faults, because they'll already know, and they'll just be relieved to know that you also know. (laughs) Because what's easier to see, the plank in your eye or the speck in somebody else's eye? So it's easy for people to see the things that I don't do well, And so I might as well just be open and honest about it because they already know. Don't put forth a facade, an image. People love justifying their sin while blaming others. That's the plank thing in spades. Have you ever been doing something you knew you shouldn't be doing and you just kept talking about it in your mind until you realize, I guess it's fine. You're deceiving yourself. You're not loving the truth. You're justifying sin. And that's why sin makes people stupid. Have you ever noticed that when people start falling into sin, they start making ridiculously terrible decisions and not seeing reality for what it is? It's because they've been trying to trick their mind into rejecting what the Spirit is putting in their heart and going their own way. And it creates deception. So we must not justify our sin. The last one I've got on my list is loving what you would prefer to have be true rather than the truth. We don't get to pick what's true. I mean, we get to a little bit. I'm wearing a maroon shirt. I got to pick the shirt. It's true that I'm wearing this shirt. But as far as global significance, it's not that big of a deal. There are just things about reality we don't get to pick. The character and nature of God, we don't get to pick. Somehow people think that religious things are things that they just get to choose. Well, I like this idea. Is it true? doesn't make any difference if it's not true. I mean, I don't like paying taxes. I don't just get to decide, oh, yeah, well, for me, you know, morally, I just don't pay taxes because I just feel that they don't apply to me. doesn't matter. Is that going to work with the IRS? Yeah, it doesn't work with God either. We have to discover the truth, the truths of God, as well as other truths in reality, and look at them. If you don't love the truth, the truth won't set you free. Love the truth. So here is the three-word crux of the sermon. If we want to be free to see clearly, free from deception and lies, we must love the truth. So I want you to say that with me. Ready? Here we go. Love the truth. I've got some good news for you. You don't need to be afraid of the truth. It turns out that the truth includes some very, very good news. And that is 
that there is a God in heaven that knows your name, cares about you, and loves you, that that God in heaven has made a way for all of your faults and failures and sins to be taken away and you can stand righteous before him just as you are right now. That's the truth, that we all can be free and forgiven. But just as in Matthew, Jesus described First, take the plank out of your own eye. Who takes the plank out of your eye? You do. I don't take the plank out of your eye. The government doesn't take the plank out of your eye. Your parents don't take the plank out of your eye. You take the plank out of your eye. Here we see a different rendering in Luke chapter 11. These will be our closing scriptures. Luke eleven thirty four and 35 says this. Jesus here is speaking, and this is another account of the Sermon on the Mount. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. What Jesus is talking about is the way we see the world affects our inner person, our inner kingdom. When we see the opportunities that God has put before us, when we see the beauty of what God has done, when we see the possibilities, then the eye is bringing light in. But if we look out into the world and all we see is darkness and tainted things and just traps and messes, then we get the other thing. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Who's supposed to see to it that we see clearly and we see the power of God and the love of God and we see good things? Who's to see to that? We are individually. It's our responsibility. It's my responsibility for me. It's your responsibility for you to see to it that the light within you is not darkness, that we see clearly, that we get the plank out of our eye and so we must love the truth. We are charged to see clearly. Let's ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear and to know the good news of God. Then we can be full of light that pushes out the darkness.